Hi, I'm Doug Lyons from Oceanic Capital Management, and welcome to another episode of Ask the Expert. Today, we're going to discuss important financial considerations when divorcing. We're lucky enough today to have Matt Abadamarco, an attorney who specializes in New Jersey family law, to help us answer some key questions about getting divorced. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me back, Doug. Um, we get a, both get a lot of questions from individuals uh, around people's finances as they're getting divorced. Um, so I thought it would be good to provide some you know, basic information to some of these questions. And the very first question we both get um, is, what financial information do I need to get divorced? And that's basically, you know, what do I need? What do I need to give my attorney? What records do I need to keep? That kind of stuff. Um, so perhaps you could give us a, a really solid answer, as I know you will. So, you know, that question, when asked by the person that typically manages the finances, um, would change the answer than someone who has been on the outside looking in and maybe not responsible for managing the day-to-day -day finances. Yeah, great point. Uh, you know, the, uh, I typically find that in all relationships, one, one spouse is uh, responsible for paying the bills, managing the finances, uh, maybe even making the investment decisions, meeting with the financial advisor and the accountant, and they have uh, everything you could ask for and some even have it in uh, spreadsheets where they can lay it out for you. And for those individuals, it's it's really trying to get them to narrow their focus to, to provide the tax returns, uh, the W-2s, all of the investments uh, that the parties may have. Uh, later on, when the case develops, there might be requests for uh, more extensive documentation, such as bank statements and, and otherwise. The real challenge is for the individual that doesn't know the history of, of, of the party's finances, um, they don't know uh, where to even access the documents or find them. So for those individuals, I always try to give them the comfort of knowing that we'll gather those as time progresses uh, to the extent that they can acquire them before the case begins. It's always helpful, but uh, there's there's subpoenas that happen in, in litigation. And in the mediation context, there's transparency where the, those documents will be handed over and examined. Uh, there's always a question though, what, you know, how do I know that I'm getting everything? And there's no way to guarantee that 100%, but the tax returns are usually the window into finding out what might be out there. You know, looking at the schedules on the tax returns can show a lot about the history of the party's assets and, and uh, their, their investment income or capital losses, uh, looking at those to try to trace back where the money might be. It's, it's not an easy question to answer, and it seems like such an obvious one. You know, what do I need to bring to my first meeting with my attorney or my financial advisor helping me through the divorce process? Um, as much as you can, I guess, is the, is the right answer uh, to start. And usually that, that first meeting leads to a request for additional documents. Um, and certainly there's cases where it's much more complicated than others, where, you know, if there's restricted stock units or other things that might be out there. Um, you know, businesses, getting business returns, uh, you know, gathering financial information is, is more of a, a journey rather than saying that it happens on this date and everything's provided. And I think the important thing for, for individuals going through the divorce process is to realize that uh, you don't need everything to get started. Um, the attorney or, and the financial advisor will help you 
and guide you through that process. And if you look at it as a journey to gathering the information rather than having to have it all together, uh, that's a better way to look at it. Yeah, I think I'm sure uh, you have the same experience, right? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, it's kind of like um, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and like you said, you start to uncover or peel back the layers of the onion as you start to learn more about, you know, the couple and their finances and their job. And that's especially true. Um, I'm sure you've seen it when you're working with individuals that own businesses, um, they're, they're business owners, and there's a whole complicated, a lot of complications with that. But um, uh, there, there, the other question that that leads into is, you know, how important is creating a budget up front? And what is this uh, CIS form that I hear about? Yeah, so the case information statement can be daunting. So in every uh, divorce action, a case information statement is required. And that document is valuable uh, to the court system because it outlines all of the income assets and liabilities. Uh, and it's also used if the case ever gets modified in the future, the court will look to that document to adjust support in the future. So it's not just a, a document uh, for the present case that's going on, but it's also something the court will look back to in the future if there's ever an application made to modify support. That budget inside the case information statement is so important to the individual trying to manage their lifestyle and look to make projections. Uh, you know, we always, uh, in the financial world, right, you're always telling people that budgets are important. And a lot of times the, the CIS, the case information statement, is the first time that a couple or an individual has ever made a budget. So it, it's it's challenging for them trying to figure out what they, they spend each month. And oftentimes they, they leave things out or they, they don't think about costs because they're not recurring. And seeing what it looks like to run your household on, on a monthly basis uh, helps make decisions, um, you know, and it can help make decisions on whether or not the home that they're living in is affordable or the home that they're looking to purchase, whether it's outside of their budget. And it also ties back into their goals. You know, if your goal is to retire and, you know, a time horizon of five or 10 years, but your budget leaves you with no money to put into your 401k uh, or to set money aside and leaves you with a high mortgage those plans of retirement aren't going to be there. So uh, that budget, creating that budget is so important. And I always think that that budget is best prepared with someone like yourself, Doug, because if uh, an attorney is looking at it, they don't really have the expertise or the time to, to look at each of those budget line items and ask those deeper questions that a financial advisor might uh, ask. But it also gives... Uh, you an opportunity as a, as a financial individual uh, to say, well, you know, are you planning appropriately and asking those questions that are really outside the, the purview of the attorney to ask about their college savings, their retirement savings, uh, how they're looking at uh, money down the road. Um, you know, taking a snapshot today is helpful for the divorce attorney, but it's really not helpful for the client to know what their budget is today. It's to figure out where they're going long term and building that that budget as part of a lifestyle that they're going to live uh, post-divorce. Yeah, and, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, so many times I've um, engaged with clients that have already gone through divorce and they've never had someone, um, you know, a financial person kind of walk them through what their settlement means to them long-term. Um, and uh, if we can do that ahead of time, 
it's a real eye-opening experience. And I think everybody comes out of that divorce um, with a much better satisfaction level than had they not know uh, prior to the divorce. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's a, it's a get to, instead of a have to, you know, you don't, you have to do the case information statement, but you, you get to do it and you get to see what your life looks like. And I think for people that are going through divorce, one of their biggest fears is, you know, am I going to be able to survive financially when this is over? And if that fear is not uh, quelled by doing the budget, uh, then, then they're going to be left with indecision uh, there's going to be great anxiety. So it spills over into every other aspect of the negotiation. Um, and it can, it can be a springboard to better negotiations if you say, okay, I can survive with with this amount or the amount being offered is too high, too low. Um, it can it can impact the negotiations and help you develop a plan for your for your yourself, your children. Um, so it, it's so important. Uh, you know, a lot of times too, the case information statement uh, is a trigger for finding other assets. Um, you know, it's not just the budget that's on the case information statement, but there's a it enumerates all types of different assets. And uh, you probably have experienced this, too, where you're going through the assets and they're like, oh, yeah, I have an IRA from a former employer or, you know, a 401k that's been sitting out there for a long period of time or a whole life insurance policy. So. Um, you know, not just doing the budget, but the case information statement also sometimes will ask the right questions that uh, helps you remember or recall certain assets that you may have forgotten or liabilities. Absolutely. Um, how about when it comes to credit cards? Of course, everybody has credit cards these days. Um, should I close all my joint accounts and open ones in my name? Yeah, so this this question, it it's not easily answered because it depends on the situation. You know, if closing credit cards can affect credit scores, is my understanding. Um, and yes, if if and if uh, if left unchecked, uh, one spouse can run up a credit card and then seek to hold you responsible. Now. Theoretically, any debt that's incurred after the divorce begins is, belongs to the party that incurs it. But if they're incurring a debt that's marital in nature, they're going to seek to be reimbursed for it. Oftentimes, when people come into our doors, finance is one of the reasons that brought them into our doors. And if one party is perceived as a spender and the other one is, is fiscally conservative, that can be a bone of contention for them. And the credit card... Uh, balances oftentimes are, are some of the biggest areas of dispute. Who's responsible for them? What charge is a marital charge and which one is not? Um, so if I have a, an individual that is uh, dependent upon another individual and they don't have a credit history, closing the credit card uh, can impact them uh, substantially. Conversely, if I have an individual who's with an, uh, a spouse that um, may have a spending problem uh, or uh, has no care in the world for running up the credit cards or doesn't care if the parties go bankrupt. In, in that uh, arena, I might suggest, depending on the circumstances, either reducing the uh, balance that can be placed on the card uh, or closing them out if, if they have one that they've recently paid off and, and the credit score is not a concern of the client. So I think it, it depends on the individuals. Um, 
the other thing that, that comes up a lot is authorized user versus joint uh, indebtedness. A lot of times people have a card, but they're not the responsible party. So I always suggest to clients that if they're concerned about indebtedness, and really it's a good thing for everyone to do is to run a credit report and see whether or not they're a responsible party on a credit card. Uh, they may not even have you know a concern if they're just an authorized user. Right, right. No, that's good advice. Uh, oftentimes I see someone come in, their divorce is settled and um, we start talking about college and that never came up. What is, or how is paying for college addressed in New Jersey law? And what is the, the college contribution law in New Jersey? So New Jersey is one of the few states that where children over 18 are, are not deemed emancipated. And as a result of that, New Jersey imposes upon parents an obligation to pay for college based on a series of factors uh, in a case called Newburgh. Uh, it's it's a strange thing to think about that if, if two people are, are happily married and they have a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old going away to a university, they have zero responsibility to pay for that college. However, those same two people, if they're divorced, can be compelled to pay for college for their children. And the way that New Jersey looks at it is based on these factors that are not very clear cut. There's no formula. So they'll look at the aptitude of the child. They'll look at you know the parents' historical education. Uh, they'll look at income and assets. And income and assets are, are the, the primary focus uh, that the court will look at. So they may say that, you know, if one parent earns, you know, say a hundred thousand and the other earns 30,000, uh, they will, you know, apply a percentage towards the college contribution. Sometimes they'll cap it. Sometimes, um, the court will, uh, require the child to take loans. And really every case is so unique when it comes to college, because if you look at every family and you know you just think about your neighbors or, or friends and colleagues everybody's circumstance is so different when it comes to college and what college the child is going to uh, so there's no one size fits all here but I, I i would say this that people that are guided by principles make better decisions when it comes to college if you have two parents that uh it is their life goal to put their kids through college and they'll sacrifice everything they have in order to do it that's easy enough, but that's not most people. Usually there's a disagreement or neither parent wants to put themselves in such an indebted situation where they've put their children through college, but now they have to work until the day they die. And there's this anomaly that's occurred in America where uh, parents have put their kids through college, but those, those parents can no longer retire. And so in one sense, they've helped their children and now they've become dependent upon their children. Uh, you know, I have cases where the parents have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt for children, and some of those children haven't completed their college education. Uh, they, you know, dropped out, and uh, these parents are, are sitting on these debts that don't go away. Uh, they're not dischargeable in bankruptcy, and uh, there's there's no easy way out of them. So I know that's a pretty dark picture I just painted, yeah. um, but, um, but it, it's, uh, you know, student loan debt is, is a crisis in this country. And uh, the New Jersey courts are going to are compelling parents to take on loans or, or satisfy a portion of, of, of the, a college education. And it's putting children 
and their parents in, in really difficult spots. One of the things I would do as mediators is try to um, suggest to parents to put caps on their responsibility to do some college planning. You know, ideally, if they have young children, they sit with someone like yourself, Doug, and they they, they put together five two nine plans or or Coverdells or some other type of uh, you know long term savings to offset that that impending uh, challenge that's going to happen when they go away to school. But I, I think without proper planning. If, if you have teenagers, you have nothing set aside for college and you're dividing your assets equally um, through a divorce process, paying for college is not, you know, high on the, the ability list of things that you're easily able to take care of. Uh, most, most Americans can't afford to pay for college out of pocket. They need to come up with college planning and uh, they need to, to figure out ways to handle it. And if if people are trying to pay for college and they haven't sat down with with a financial advisor, uh, they're making a lot of bad decisions. They're taking on bad debts and uh, they're they're digging deep holes. Um, and people don't know all the intricate ways that you can utilize assets to pay for college. Which That's I think, right. uh, yeah. So I mean, I, I I know that I've I've seen you do it in the past with individuals, but uh, you know, oftentimes I think you, it's too late before they sit down with someone like yourself. Yeah, I mean, the, just the fact that you're, you know, I know that you do this and you talk about college with your clients, but by not talking about it, I think um, attorneys are doing a real disservice to their their clients um, because, you know, five, 10 years later, they're back in court arguing over, you know, who's going to pay for this, who's going to pay for that when it could have easily been settled up front. And, and, you know, you think about it too, right? A lot of times people are dividing their debts and, you know, we just talked about credit cards, right? They, they, they argue um, to the death over a $10,000 credit card bill and then just put in their agreement, uh, God forbid, that they're each going to pay 50% of college. Um, so, they, you know, they argued over a $10,000 issue, but, you know, agreed easily on a 200,000 yeah. <laughs> exactly. 200, on today's dollars. And, uh, you, you know, who knows what it's going to look like 10 or 20 years from now. Um, so I, I think not enough focus is put on on college and how to handle it and putting caps in place and, and you know, even the mechanism to handle it. One of the factors in New Jersey law is that the, uh, the, the court will look at the relationship between the parents and the, and the child. And that's one of the considerations. Um, you know, uh, one parent can't just be looked at as a wallet to pay for college. And you may not believe this to be true, Doug, but there are teenagers that disagree with their parents from time to time. <laughs> so so a lot of times if, if there's really loose language in an agreement or uh, sometimes people will heighten that factor, um, if there's a soured relationship, it can impact the financial uh, obligation towards college because really what we're, we're asking a parent to do is to pay for an adult to go to school. Um, it's, it's pretty wild. And, uh, you know, you, you can get me on a soapbox talking about college because, you know, if, if a family gets divorced in, in Philadelphia, uh, they have no obligation. If they, if they go across the river, uh, that obligation all of a sudden, uh, yeah, they're, they're it's hard to pay for it. Several crazy, crazy law here in New Jersey. Crazy. Um, how about, you know, uh, let's assume college is paid for um, retirement is really the, the big elephant in the room. Um, how is retirement impacted? Um, you know, a couple of questions I get, do I, do I get half of my 
spouse's retirement accounts? Do I get half of their social security, even though I'm not married to them anymore? Yeah. So uh, on retirement accounts, only the portion that's acquired during the marriage is subject to distribution. And so take, for example, a firefighter uh, that that began in their 20s working in a fire department. They get married in their 30s and divorced in their 40s. Um, you know, the, the portion of the retirement account that was acquired when the, the firefighter was in his or her 20s would only be uh, would be their asset. The rest would be divided. Same with a 401k or an IRA. So uh, sometimes people will be will come into my office and they'll say, oh, you know, my spouse has, you know, a million dollars in retirement. Well, if they're only married for five years, we know that million dollars wasn't acquired during the marriage. So the uh, the spouse is unlikely to receive uh, anywhere near half a million dollars of that policy. Um, so with retirement assets, how they're divided is is important too. Uh, if it's a 401k or a 403b, 457, things like that, those are done through a quadro. And the reason we do it that way is it avoids tax. So once the retirement asset transfers from wife to husband or husband to wife, uh, those assets transfer completely tax-free if done through a qualified order. Uh, same thing with an IRA. We'll use a letter of instruction to transfer the uh, asset from one parent, uh, one one spouse to the other. And there's no tax on the transfer, but there's definitely a tax when you pull it out. Uh, Uncle Sam always gets his dollar. So you can't avoid the tax when you pull the money out of the retirement, but you can avoid the tax when you transfer it. You also raise Social Security. Uh, Social Security is a, a more complicated area of law, and we could probably spend five sessions just talking about Social Security. But basically, the you get all of your Social Security dollars or half of your spouse's, whichever is greater. But you have to be married for 10 years. Sometimes people will come in and they're married for nine years and they want to get a divorce. If the two are amicable and one is is dependent upon the other, sometimes they'll hold the judgment of divorce date for 10 years to open the door for Social Security to be paid. Uh, there's also Social Security derivative benefits that are paid for children under age 18 if a spouse is disabled. What Social Security you elect and when you elect it is probably much more important than anything else. Um, as you're well aware, Doug, right, that, you know, a lot of people will come with the question of, should I turn on my Social Security income once it's, you know, once I'm eligible at age 62? Right. And I never answer that question because I don't know the answer to that question. That, that's a Doug question. That's not a Matt question. And I, I would imagine that your answer is right. It depends on the circumstances and whether they're receiving alimony. Oh, yeah. Uh, Right. Well, we actually so, have uh, sophisticated software that helps us answer that question because there's a lot of a lot of inputs that go into answering that. Right, I, I would imagine so. And you know, you know, I've I've always heard people say, "Well, take the money now because uh, you know it's not guaranteed and things like that." But I don't think that that it's it's such a simple answer. I mean, like you said, you had sophisticated software to handle it. Um, it it's a it's a complicated question, and. Uh, you know, the 10-year mark is important. Also, if someone's disabled and they turn on Social Security, it, it does change their their ability to, to modify it in the future. 
Um, but there's there's a lot more deeper questions to be answered, and it's not something that an attorney should be giving advice on. I don't think, in my opinion, I think that's a question for a financial advisor when to turn it on. But the entitlement certainly arises after 10 years of marriage. Great. Well, we'll end it there. That was a lot of great information, Matt. So thank you for your participation. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, Doug. Anytime that, that I, I can participate, help and uh, provide information to, to your listeners, uh, it's really a pleasure for me to, to share as much information as possible. If you'd like to reach out to Matt, uh, his website is mammothlawfirm.com. And we at Oceanic Capital specialize in helping those in pre and post divorce financial planning. Our website is oceaniccap.com. And we really appreciate you listening. Check back on our website for more informative blogs, videos, and podcasts like this. Please note that this presentation does not represent an offer to buy or sell securities and that Oceanic Capital Management does not provide tax or legal advice. And today's guest does not represent himself as an export expert and is not providing legal advice in today's podcast. Thank you.